Anna and I talked on a warm summer afternoon. We sat on her deck overlooking the Salmon River with stunning views of geologic time. In the background, you'll hear road noise from the highway below. I was so struck by the view that it took me a minute to ask my first question. I'm still in love with this view. I have an amazing view. You get to see amazing geology every day. Oh yeah. Um, the person who chose this place was the man I moved up here with, and he was a geologist. Oh. <laughs> and so Chalice is like geology geologist heaven. Yeah. Well, you've got the. He must have sat here and thought about all because you can see all kinds of, yeah. I mean, different layers. Yeah. So um, the first question I ask most people to reflect on. Do you have a, an early memory? The, the first thing you can remember as a human being on Earth, like, that sticks in your mind. Yeah. I was sitting very close to my mother on a couch at my grandma, grandparents' place. And that was just pretty much the, the memory. And when I was probably eight or so, I was recalling that memory and t talking about where the staircase was and, and everything else. And uh, my mom is like, no, you, you weren't born yet when all that was there. They remodeled it shortly after you were born. So yeah, that's my first memory. So you remembered something that shouldn't have actually... I was in the womb. Ah. And that explains why I felt so incredibly close to my mother. Yeah. So your thought was that you were sitting next to her on a couch. Yeah. That's how you made meaning of that memory. Right. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Any other childhood memories that spring to mind? Well, one time... There was a very odd deja vu moment, and I know there are biological explanations for deja vu, but this was the weirdest thing. We were moving, and I was not supposed to get on the bus, and I did, and I was let off the bus, and there's my mother behind the bus, mad as a hatter, because I'd forgotten, and she picked me up, and it was raining, and then we went to the new place and it was out in on this old dirt road and we went through a fence and i saw the the haystack that we were going by and i turned to my sister and i said i can tell you what's going to happen next we're going to get stuck in the corral and we did <laughs> it was very muddy you know, and this was long before four-wheel drive or even front-wheel drive. And so, um, sure enough, we went through the second gate. We got mired in the mud. And then I walked up to the house and I showed my sister what it looked like because I'd been there. So. Have you always, uh, throughout your life, had extrasensory perception? Not particularly, no. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, a lot of it has to do with just being practical. It's like, well, I'm not going to um, cultivate my mystical abilities at the expense of making a living, you know. It's like, nah, I, and I don't look good in beads and flowery dresses, so, you know. But, yeah, there are times. There are times. 
Or you feel, is it, is it, you would identify it as instinct or intuition or something else? I don't know. I don't know. It just happens. And like I say, they, they talk about biological reasons for deja vu. But one time I went down to Bolivia and uh, these things kept happening that I dreamt about before. And, and I'm like, well, why the hell did I spend all this money on a trip? If I could have just dreamt about it, you know, <laughs> a lot cheaper. It <laughs> but again, I don't know what it is. It, it just happens sometimes. Yeah. I don't rely on it. No. That would be bad, bad odds there. But yeah. I'm not a gambler. <laughs> when you were a young woman, like, I think as young women, we're in our, you know, 13, 14, 15, did you have this idea of what your life would be like? Oh, I was so sure I was going to be a lawyer. That was my thing. And prior to that, I, there were many things I wanted to be. And so, um, but when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I focused on that in the same way most teenagers back then did, which was, I thought that was what was going to happen. You know, and then you grow up, you turn 18, and all of a sudden there's no money for college. And then there's sure as hell no money for grad school. So the thing that happened for me is my younger self, my 10-year-old self that wanted to be many things, that's what I wound up doing. Oh. But I never became a lawyer. Yeah. And did you want to become a lawyer because you had like a a sense of justice that you felt like you had to pursue? Oh yeah, yeah, and I wanted to make speeches. I wanted, you know, I, I can't even remember what the TV was like back then, but it was just like, um, I read, gosh, did I read Clarence Darrow and F. Lee Bailey? And, you know, I was, oh, and advising consent, you know, politics I think was part of it for me. I wanted to get into politics. Yeah, I wanted to be, um, for all the wrong reasons, basically. I just wanted attention, and I, I thought that was would be the best way I could show everybody how smart I was. Yeah, but that didn't happen, and that's okay. I, I'm very grateful that I did not follow that path just after having gotten to know a lot of legal people in the legal profession and it's like oh what are the odds I wouldn't have just been suicidal before it was over <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't the type of life that you you thought it would be no it was not the fairy tale story yeah. you know there are only so many F. Lee Baileys and Clarence Darrow's and and uh, the rest of them are slogging out a living yeah. somewhere hating their job and I would have had far more access to cocaine, and that probably would have killed me. <laughs> As it was, it was bad enough. <laughs> so what was your first um, job then, if you had many jobs? Well, early on, I was accepted into a program for abnormal psychology, a summer work-study program in Sheridan, Wyoming, at the age of 18. My mother drove me to Sheridan, dropped me off with 12 other people, 
and we worked at the Veterans Administration Hospital and we took classes and then we hung out with World War I vets that were debilitated due to syphilis and gonorrhea and then we hung out with Native American alcoholics and then we had normal alcoholic programs that, and we were just 18 year olds supposed to be helping and of course uh, nobody listens to an 18 year old especially if they've had no real experience I mean but it was a great program I sort of got interested in the, the psychological field so I wound up working at Idaho State School and Hospital in Nampa for many years, about six probably, and I eventually um, wound up running a program for violent and aggressive clients there at the state school and worked there prior to running the outfit and just worked my way up through the ranks dealing with uh, mentally challenged uh, individuals who at the in the one special unit they were also extremely violent so you learned how to deal with violent people and I've always um, I've always said in later life it it really helped me deal be it helped me in communicating with people because I come from a world where they beat you up or try to beat you up if you speak badly to them. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, no, you know, and, and so it, it toughened me up. It um, taught me a ton about human behavior. And then I finally realized I wasn't going any farther up the food chain without an education so I went to uh, the U of O and got a degree in public administration I thought I wanted business but then I hung out with the business people and I decided they were losers and so I wound up in the public administration department and then came back to Idaho and ran a group home for emotionally disturbed children and uh, eventually moved up here had a couple of foster kids that lived here that was an incredible strain on the relationship because in the meantime I had met a, a good man and um, we moved up here together and he was an only child and had some very strong strong beliefs about what life should be and it did not include mentally challenged acting out kids but we got through it and um then i took up cooking for a living so <laughs> that kind of threw me and we give me a second so <laughs> <laughs> you know cooking <laughs> i got you i heard the cooking part and you've had this elaborate <clears throat> detailed training dealing with violent people and, and mentally um, disturbed people that requires not you know, so much disturbed oh, as as low IQ low IQ yeah. okay. okay I mean yeah there were disturbances but it wasn't always the voices in their heads that made them act out okay yeah and then there's just a moment where you say I'm going to just cook from now on, or I just want to cook now. Was there, was there not any sort of Well, what happened pivotal? was 
event that changed yeah. your mind? Like I said, I moved up here with a geologist, and he was an exploratory geologist. He had no desire to, to hook up with an agency or do oil research or, you know, exploration. So he was a hard rock miner geologist. He would get jobs wherever. And he got a job up in Alaska one year, and I stayed home and herded the two children I had living here. But he got homesick, and he got cranky, and he finally talked him into, well, my girlfriend can cook. Can she come up here and cook? And so I'm like pulling out Joya cooking, dusting it off, going, oh, how do you cook? How do you cook? <laughs> so I went up there. I think I was up there for, oh, gosh, not even a month, I don't think, and worked for this out outfit up at Sandpoint out in the Schumigans. And then um, the next year they hired me on full-time. And so I made arrangements for the kids to be taken care of elsewhere but it didn't work out and so at that point it was like um, either you choose the kids or you choose this other life that your seasonal work in exotic places so I chose exotic places <laughs> and so I cooked for a few years not that many a few years after that and then picked up work with an outfitter here in town and so I would go out to the Aleutians or interior Alaska and cook for the season and then I'd show up in time for um, in time for the hunting season so, so I'd go out. Did you have to sort of teach yourself to cook? Was your first couple of meals tricky or did you just sort of jump in and you found that you had a knack for it? Um, well, I grew up in a family where I had to cook when my mom wasn't around. You know, she went to summer school and stuff like that. So I had the basics, you know, I could roast meat. <laughs> I could make gravy. And then working at the group home, you know, there were meals. I, I you know, kind of took over the the kitchen as far as buying food and and planning meals and whatnot that was part of my job and so and then moved up here with Tom and he loved to eat so I had to get better at cooking so by the time I took off I knew a little bit but I mean cooking it like for a large numbers of people is different than just you know a dinner oh it cooking. sure is yeah 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 no I, it was mostly self-taught but I was always interested, you know, my thing was when we started going to Alaska, it would be to go to eat at these restaurants and figure out what was in it and then make it, you know? So that was always fun. So did you, was it the cooking part or the people or just the fact that it was so different or was it just? We went to the most astoundingly beautiful places on earth and remote. I love remote. Remote makes me happy. And when you're out on the Bering Sea with not another soul around for, you know, 40 air miles, 
and he sure as hell can't walk to the next human. That I was in heaven. I loved it. And I loved the exotic. I liked, I got used to flying and boats and it was just completely out of my wheelhouse and I loved every second of it. And so, and I liked the crew for the most part. Usually, you know, you had your drillers and you had to make good cheesecake and they did not like yogurt on baked potatoes. <laughs> that was not done. <laughs> but if you baked enough bread, they were okay. And you didn't run out of Pepsi. That was very important. And then you had the geologists who were fairly well-traveled. And they ate everything. You know, they loved Japanese food. They loved good Chinese food. And, and, um, and then the pilots... It was usually helicopter-based, and so the pilots were usually kind of worldly, and they liked different foods. So it was always um, kind of fun to come up with good stuff and have them be happy. As long as the cheesecake was just like Grandma made, the drillers were okay. <laughs> but they didn't like Japanese night, by God. <laughs> it's like you had to have something stash for them to eat. So it's just a case of, of keeping the balls in the air and, and um, making it edible for everyone. So, no, it was fun. It was uh, probably the best job I've ever had. And I really enjoyed cooking for the outfitter that I worked for. Hunters were... Um, you know, they were middle class, saved their money. This was a big trip for them, and they were usually very polite and um, really shouldn't have been eating as much meat and potatoes as I was giving them, you know, because they were older. Yeah. <laughs> the guides, they could eat their weight in, in food, and it never touched them because they were working so hard. And so, anyway, that was great fun, and I loved being out in the hills again very isolated and wonderful just absolutely wonderful yeah it was a great time but eventually all of that started to peter out as with most gold exploration companies they ran out of investors and so you know that scene was drying up so about that time I um, I consistently applied to the Chalice Messenger, the local newspaper, for a job, and I kept getting turned down, and the last time I applied, I listed as one of my hobbies was uh, applying for jobs at the Chalice Messenger. <laughs> <laughs> so you decided to take the smart-ass angle for the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, and the boss finally relented, and so for the next 20-some years, I worked at the newspaper. So... Had you ever written for a paper before? Nope. You just decided this was the, the next piece of your life? Well, I read a lot. Yeah. And when Tom was alive, he read a lot. And so I kind of learned. I mean, I knew how to, I knew what a lead was. You know, it's like, okay, lead first, then say stuff. And, um, for whatever reason, I was really good at just kind of looking at things from afar, you know. I did not have much 
um, personal investment in the outcome or how what things were said or whatever. And so, and if I did, again, when Tom was alive, I'd just come home and, and vent, and then I'd get over it and I'd be okay. And then when he died, um, I learned how to just kind of vomit on this paper, on the screen, and then toss it and then do the stories, you know. But as far as learning to write, um, I uh, I just picked it up from reading good writing and then figuring out my own philosophy when it came to uh, presenting stories and issues. So yeah, it was kind of like my cooking. I just figured it out. <laughs> Do you think that, was there, is there something significant in your childhood or in the, the rearing of you as a child that gave you this ability to just say, well, you know, I'm just going to change direction now and I, I have no hesitation. I'm just going to sort of walk in a new path and jump in. I don't know. I don't think so. My mom did it. She was the breadwinner after um, she and my dad divorced. And so she, you know... She mostly taught school, though. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's just my nature is like, oh, I want, I want me some of that. I want to try that. Here, let me break it. You know, <laughs> and and then I'd always liked writing. I wanted to write, so that was um, this was an opportunity to do that. And so I just didn't want to be a crappy writer. And so, you know, my journalistic style, I don't think, you know, would never make it in the New York Times or anything else, but I had a pretty, I had fans. People liked my stuff. I've read your paper. When I wrote it? Yeah. <laughs> Long ago? Yeah. 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 So anyway... And I got a great reputation with, because when I first came here, you know, I was your typical uh, urban idiot that just thought everything was black and white, cows bad, um, you know, elk good, or whatever, <laughs> you know. And so everybody kind of braced when they saw that, because I'd written letters to the editor and stuff like that prior to working for them. And... Um, you know, everybody thought, oh, God, here's another screaming environmentalist. But it was not hard to be fair, especially with my boss, you know, who's like, what did just get as many sides of the issue as you can and don't get the quotes wrong. <laughs> and so um, I just learned to listen and, and hear their side of the story. And, and I was good at presenting it. And they were thrilled. They liked it. So, you know, the most rabid, um, conservative, hate all the environmentalists, they'd talk to me when they wouldn't talk to anybody else. So it was kind of weird. Well, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think that if you offer respect of listening yeah. to a person yeah. and you're not trying to get, to get a, an angle going and make them sound like something, 
Hmm. Is what you're just describing now is almost the antithesis of anything you read right now in papers. Oh, I know it drives me nuts. Well, there's there's the there's the thing that drives me nuts too is that the idea of being a moderate is somehow an endangered species now. Yeah. Because it's a pretty extreme. Yeah. Nothing that you read seems to have a middle ground of compassion or understanding mm -hmm. or thought. So that's how you rolled, huh? That's yeah. how you got to stay in this town. And plus, yeah. I'm a spud, you know, born and bred. I was born in my grandmother's house and above the Clearwater, you know, and, and I left Idaho once to finish school and came back and never really wanted to leave. And then finding Chalice was huge was huge because it was like oh my god this is perfect <laughs> you know it's just redneck enough to to feel comfortable and and not everybody is um you know i've seen it <laughs> ain't got none of that you know i mean it, there's intellect and and artist artistic uh individuals and and good people all around so yeah. I always ask this question because I think we always forget that every person we meet is a human being. Mm -hmm. I mean, a vulnerable human being. Is there anything that has ever, have you had a moment in your life or moments or times when you've been truly terrified? Really frightened? Not from humans, but yeah, one time we were out in the Aleutians and uh, a gale came over which was actually hurricane force winds and uh, it was blowing weatherport tents down and we were wet you know it was raining on top of it so it's like at, i don't know that i was terrified but i realized i could die we could die you know because we are exposed and there's no way to stay warm at this point and so the first thing I thought was, oh God, I'll never see Tom again. And at the time I wasn't smoking, and so I said, I wish I had a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, probably when I get, when I'm canoeing or something and get dumped in the water. <laughs> I'm sorry, um, I'm not laughing. Yeah. I got dumped into the water yesterday. Did you? Oh yeah, it was. Where? Uh, I, there was a large erratic boulder and I hit it the wrong way and I just flipped it. I went under and... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know exactly what you mean. You know, and one time, <laughs> a couple of times, this one friend I canoe with, um, we've dumped it and he always goes, are you okay? And I go, no. <laughs> I, I don't like, I don't know. I don't do terror much. I really don't. I, I'm sure there's got to be. When I screw up really bad, I can feel pretty bad. You know, there have been a time or two where I made the wrong call, and it's, it's just fucked beyond imagination. And I guess that's the closest to terror I've ever felt. Because you, you, know? you regretted the choice. Oh, big time. And it's like, oh, God, there's no fixing it. There's no fixing it. <laughs> and how did you... How did you keep going forward because you seem like a person that seems to be able to move forward well the big thing is 
you give yourself 24 hours to just wallow in that misery just wallow you know if you can if you can tear your hair out do it you know and find a place to scream and and just be as negative as possible and then after the 24 hours is over it's like okay what do we do now how do we get out of this so that's what i do i am just you don't even want to be near me for 24 hours <laughs> it is bad news but that's a coping mechanism yeah i mean i know people that can't ever get out of that moment yeah for a that long would time. be hell how do you see yourself versus how do you think other people see you this is a question I ask and it takes a minute to perceive like you know we all know ourselves is how we see ourselves and then how do you think everybody else sees you compared to how you see you I have heard that most of my in-law type relatives are scared to death of me they're frightened of me and so I always find that odd, but I think it's just because I'm really direct and um, I'm not apologetic. You know, I don't really carry a lot of judgment when I say your face is crooked, you know, <laughs> but, but, you know, or if somebody does something that I find objectionable, I'm not opposed to saying that bothers me. Don't do that. I don't know. Anyway, people are some people are afraid of me i don't know why i don't think i'm that scary but i like it when glenn is afraid of me <laughs> because then he doesn't pull a bunch of crap and he is the leftover of of those days when i used to take care of special needs individuals he wound up in my life after i moved here and so I don't take care of him full time, but I help. So he lives with you or a few days a week or, you know, for a week and a half. And then he goes off. He has connections in town and other people take care of him. So it's a shared deal. And I'm the strict one. I'm the one that makes him toe the line. And again, I'm not the least bit apologetic about it. And he gets along fine with it. So. Because there's structure. Yeah. 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 And once a person figures out expectations, you know, as long as those don't deviate, you know, if people are fairly sane, um, then the expectations remain the same. And so you can adjust and, and move along nicely. You can't be erratic, though. That, that's a big one. How old is Glenn? Well, he will tell you he is 49, soon to be 50, October 14th. Would you like to come to Bucks's and help him <laughs> celebrate? <laughs> He's old. He's old. But and I've known him since he was 11. And his family, he doesn't have uh, parents still living? He had, hadn't lived with his family for since he was young. They were incapable of caring for him. So he's been in the system since he was real young. He seems pretty capable, though. Not bad. He, as far as... Um, he has really good social skills. Mm-hmm. 
until he, he doesn't turn him off. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Is that what, one of the things that you're strict about? No boundaries. He has no boundaries, or he does not recognize boundaries. And so, yeah. Once we're done, I'll, I'll turn him loose on you for a while. <laughs> so he can get it out of his system. Yeah, because yeah, he's, he's been peeking by and oh, really yeah. excited to meet new people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He loves it. Are there things still left to do in your life? Because you, you've tracked from pretty diverged from what I consider vastly different uh, areas of interest. Is there something left that you're... Well, to do? my big challenge now is since I retired from the newspaper, I am learning how to be a has-been. And that is what retiring is. You become a has-been. I've been reflecting on, um, you know, obituaries of old geezers who've been around. You, you walk around town and you see some white-haired old gal just kind of barely making it up the street. And for some reason... Maybe it's society, I don't know. It's like, she did things in her life. She did a lot of shit in her life. And now she's this old person that, that we um, relate to. It's like, oh, there's that old person. And so when you retire and uh, as I age, it's like, oh, so I'm that old person. I'm that has been that no longer has a function. I don't get to, you know, get to correct people's spelling and punctuation and, and tell them, you know, no, you're not going to call somebody an asshole in a letter to the editor. You know, I don't get to make the calls. I don't get to be that person I was. And so the new thing is, who am I? Outside of work, because I've worked up my whole life. And so, apparently, I garden. I'm, I, there's <laughs> clear evidence of some success in that area. Yes. Yeah. I garden, and I still cook. I don't cook for crews anymore, but it, I, I um, definitely cook. And I don't, I lost my, my writing outlet because the person who took over the newspaper is... Um, is not a good person to work with. Um, I thought I would just continue to do occasional stories and, you know, how it is when, like we were supposed to, they were trying to get a jail bond through. And I so wanted to roam around the state and talk to all these podunk counties and figure out how they dealt with their jail situations, you know, and, and it would have been a great job. But I couldn't trust this woman to um, leave my stuff alone. Oh, so... Yeah, we're, we're not talking editing, we're talking write, rewrites. And I, as any journalist or anyone who puts their name out there, it's got to be your work. Sure, correct the spelling, get the commas in the right spot, and... Uh, if you don't understand what this sentence means, give me a call and we'll figure it out, you know. But you can't rewrite my stuff because there's too much at stake when my name's on it. You know, it's my reputation. And so 
I can't write for her. And breaking into the greater world of writing is like, oh, God, help me, Jesus, you know. Well, not that I give suggestions to people during podcasts, but you if you know everyone, like I'm sure that you do, there's no reason why you can't have your own blog or whatever you want to write about because that would be completely autonomous. Yeah, but I'm retired. I retired for a reason. Twenty wow. yeah, <laughs> some years of deadlines. Oh, when you work for yourself, you're your own deadline. Yeah, and um, so so far, what I've done is is um, I write letters. My family on their birthdays, they get a letter, and to me, letters are kind of a work of art. They're rare these days. Yeah, and that too. It's like, well, you could have sent me some candy, but this is far more weird, you know. It's different. Nobody gets letters. And and so I write letters to people. And so that kind of keeps my hand in it as far as writing. And, and I go visit old short stories and stuff that I wrote years ago. And it's like, oh, my God, this is bad, you know. <laughs> And so I clean stuff up, and and uh, <laughs> there's a little magazine, like I just sent off a story today for this Ruralite magazine that um, I did a story about a hydro project down in the Lost River Valley. So, you know, sounds like they want me to write more. And it's like, give me a subject. I, I'm just tired of coming up with the damn subject matter. Just tell me what what you want I'll go chase it you know because I still like that kind of stuff I just don't want a bunch of pressure so do you have any type of um, spirituality in your life that you feel guides you I really really believe in guardian angels I swear to God I have what I say about my family is we're really lucky until we're not. And so far, the guardian angels have saved me more than once. It's like I was starting to go this way, and the angels just said, just course, just course. <laughs> and um, I'm open to it. I hope to hell there's something because I've lost some very good people in my life. And I would hate to think that, that there's never going to be some kind of connection of recognition of, oh, there you are. You're still around. You know, I would love that. I would love that. You aren't the first person that I've, um, whose story I've collected that's mentioned angels. Oh, yeah? Yeah. The lady, I, she passed away a couple of days ago. She was 103. Oh, she, she, yeah, she, see? She, see? She, had ta- she had talked to me quite a bit about these back in January um, when she was um, telling me her story. And so, um, no, I mean, you're thinking about that there's this pivotal moment where some kind of force outside of yourself sort of nudges you yeah. a few degrees in a different direction. And the key is to listen. Oh. You got to listen. You can't ignore it, because a time or two I've, I've ignored it. I've been willful. It's like, no, this is the way it's going to be. And it's like, oh, shit, I should have listened. I should have listened. 
So yeah. Is the, are those one of the times when you've made the, the mistakes that you've had to wall over 24 hours in? No, those were honest, stupid mistakes. <laughs> okay. It was just like, what were you thinking? Yeah, but no. Anyway, um, I would love, I would love there to be some kind of other, but then I've never, I don't know. I, but I, I'm not Christian. <laughs> I'm not Hindu. <laughs> not Muslim. I, I like the, some of the teachings in the Buddhist religion, as well as some of the teachings in Christianity. I, I mean, I like the teachings as far as living morally and peacefully. Achieving peace in one's daily life is, is a big deal. Yeah. And I, I don't like, I grew up with a, a person who was very unhappy all the time. And is that a sibling or a parent? A parent. And fortunately, I had another parent who was just happy all the time. But, uh, but a long, long time ago, I, I just decided that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going that route. I don't want to be that unhappy person. And it took a while, you know, because when you're raised around it, you think that the only way to validate your existence is to be tormented and that the only way to feel good about yourself is to run other people down, that kind of shit. That, but fortunately, I lost that in my 20s. I got over it. So, yeah. The great love of your life. Oh, it's Mr. Tom Jacob. He and I moved up here. I had um, had a couple other relationships. One, one person I married when I was young, got rid of him, and then hooked up with another guy who was love at first sight. And we had a great time, but we grew apart based on some bad decisions. But And then Tom, I met Tom at a Atlanta, Idaho. I have been there. <laughs> yeah, in a bar, of course. <laughs> you did. And we got to know each other in a hot tub. <laughs> and um, <laughs> hot springs, rather. Yeah. And so we moved up here together, and um, it was like, it was not easy. We were two egos just looking to clash. But there was a hell of a lot of respect and and love, you know. And we made a life together, and and um, we were cooking along, and and then he was killed in a helicopter accident. And then at that point, it was like, oh shit, oh shit. So, but. No, I'm, I'm going to stop for a second. I'm not going to ask you how you felt because I know that's beyond anything uh -huh. that's a reasonable question. But uh, how did you how did you move forward after he was gone? Well, instead of 24 hours of giving and wallowing, you give yourself 365 days. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough, right? <laughs> and... I actually saw a counselor. There was a gal out 
in Ketchum, who uh, I can't remember who turned me on to her, but I was miserable. And so, and who knows which way it could have gone. So I, I was in counseling and a very sad day arrived after a few months where she said, I can't do any more for you. And I'm like, but I like our sessions. <laughs> and she's like, I do too, but I think you're there. You may move on now, you know. And, um, and then I had some really good friends, really good friends, who no longer live here. And we were tight, very tight. And we spent a lot of time together, you know. And um, had a lot of fun. And eventually, eventually, I just started coming out of it. But that first year was pretty bad. It was rough. And to this day, you know, um, Tom was, was the carpenter. He was the handyman. He was, you know, I was like, ah, oh, crap. I got to deal with this stuff myself. <laughs> so, so you still think of him often? Yeah, it's, it's more of a comfortable partnership at this point. Um, that was the, the lesson I learned with him is that just because a person dies, you don't stop having a relationship. You know, you still have that relationship. And it is so weird, but it's so true, is that, and then even bigger grief hit me several years later when my sister died of leukemia and then like 18 months after her death my brother died of brain cancer and those those were miserable incredibly miserable you were close to your siblings yeah very close so those took, I didn't go to counseling for any of those, but it, it was harder, a lot harder. And then my dad finally died and it was such a relief because he was 94 and a half. And it was like, oh, thank God, a death that makes sense. <laughs> thank you, dad, you've always been a good father. <laughs> You've done a good job all the way around. So it, it seems like death def has defined my life a lot. And I know that it's true for everybody. But the weird thing about it is, you know, if you're, like, looking to run a river and you're, like, looking at it and you're going... Part of the deal is to say to yourself, well, lots of people have done this before. So I can do it, too. But when it comes to grief, it doesn't matter that a lot of people have done it before because it's such a personal journey. It, it's like you're running the rapids for the first time anybody's ever done it. So it's harsh, which of course, I just never feel right about whining about anything, you know? if. If there's something wrong in my life, it's like, well, at least you're alive to piss and moan about it. <laughs> I know some people that would like to be, you know.
And then there's the dog. <laughs> the most expensive free dog in the history. What's the dog's name? Bugs. Bugs. Yeah. He's a little unconscious at the moment. Yes, she is. Oh, she. Yeah. Oh, Everybody calls her he. She's got a girl's personality. Then. So this is your companion now? Yeah, I like to refer to her as the um, primary mammal in my life. <laughs> Prior to Glenn spending so much time here, she was. The dog was my mammal. But Yeah. I was thinking about what you said earlier about how there was the older lady and people forget that she had this vibrant life when she was a human being. Mm-hmm. I think that's terrifying. I think it's terrifying to think that the person that you were is lost, becomes lost to others just because you're old. That they, they forget to see you. Yeah, and, and I'm assuming it has something to do with society and our love of youth. But with the boomers all getting old, I think that love affair is maybe fading. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. I was a human, too. <laughs> and there are millions of us. Um, but, yeah, it's just so easy to, unless you've known a person their entire life, it's easy to see them as they are at that moment. You know, like I, I had uh, a niece and her husband come visit the other day and, and, you know, we like went for a walk and they're like, oh my God, you're 66 and you're still doing this, you know? And it's like, well, and then we ran into Senor Royball, who's pushing 80 <laughs> on his bicycle on the trail, you know? And, and so I'm hopefully, I'm kind of like, helping them understand that there's so much more to to a person's life than than the number and and uh, your idea of what old means you know so hopefully they'll they'll get it i don't know because i remember when i was growing up you know my parents and sibling uh, aunts and uncles and stuff who talk about being old and they didn't strike me as terribly old they were busy they were always doing something you know and and they could sure as hell stay up all night drinking and playing cards you know they weren't they weren't boring and so but then i would look at old people and think oh doesn't do anything and it's like well where'd you get that you didn't grow up with that you know so, I don't know, but the whole I, idea that you have to make a mark, you have to be validated, you have to be valued, seems silly. But everybody wants that. Yeah, yeah. It would be nice. To be seen, yeah. Yeah, mm. and as I, I guess I rely on... on um, friends and family to do that you know and someday i don't know i guess i i don't mind adhering a little bit to the nihilism 
of it doesn't really matter. <laughs> this is all just kind of a fart in the wind. And that brings me comfort. I like that. I'm also comforted by the idea that a comet will destroy the Earth. I really like that one. <laughs> ha! Beat you to it, humans! <laughs> I mean, as long as we have to have end-of-earth scenarios. <laughs> Lots of those rolling around these oh, days. Oh, yeah. Always have been. A fond memory. Hmm. Lots of fond So many. Hmm. Oh, let's see. Oh, okay. Um, my sister had gotten a bone marrow transplant and I don't know if you've ever been around those but they pretty much bring a person down to death and then you tiptoe around trying not to catch anything so it doesn't kill them you know this whole COVID thing is very similar to a cancer ward <laughs> neutropenia <laughs> <laughs> and um, anyway, she got down to the nadir, and she came back up. And I was a big part of that because I was the donor, the marrow donor. And um, anyway, I left her, and she was starting to get better. And then I showed up a few weeks later, and she was feeling much better. And we went as usual she'd made friends somewhere along the line and we went to a party there was some little party that we went to and of course these people were musicians because she was a musician and they were just playing jamming along doing their little gig and all of a sudden I hear her singing and what it was is that she loved to worm her way on the stage she just loved it. It didn't matter if, I swear, if she'd ever had an opportunity with some big name, if she could have gotten past the security guard, she would have wound up on stage, you know. <laughs> and that was extremely, that made me very happy, and it was a wonderful, warm feeling that she was back. She was back. And at the time, that was enough. It was like we used to say, you know, this is good. We'll take it. Yeah. How how much longer did she live after that? About a year. Well, no, no, I'm sorry. More than a year. Um, but the last couple, three months were pretty bad. Yeah. But she, the transplant gave her um, about 14 months. Yeah. Of decent health. Yeah. So that's fun memory. But what was it? I saw two magpies talking to each other in the tree the other day. That was very fun. I just, I was like, oh, isn't that cute? <laughs> one was kind of being stoic and silent, and the other one, <laughs> And I'm thinking for a minute you might be an optimist. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I think so. 
I think so, until my luck runs out. I like to think I'm kind of realistic. One time in this one group in college, there was a study group that we got credits for hanging out together and working, and, and um, the instructor gave us all a little, she was Japanese, and she all gave us a little Japanese pin cushion and, and put two words on it for each person. And uh, her, her words for me were reality and strength. So I kind of liked that. I always thought that was pretty good. I see that. In yourself? Yeah. And you like that about yourself? I do. I do. I think it's important for people to know themselves and like themselves. It helps, doesn't it? Yeah. It helps move forward. Not a lot of people who didn't like themselves, and they're miserable to be around God. It's like, shut up. (laughs) Get a fucking life. I have a neurotic niece, the one who came to visit, and she's all, you know, she's only 28 at this point, and she's still processing all, all the stuff in her hyperactive, anxiety-ridden manner, and it's like, oh, God, I hope you grow out of that. There's no reason not to be happy. There really isn't. I mean, if you live in the Sudan or Congo, there are many reasons, places that you you can't be happy. I mean, best to you if you can find happiness there. But in our privileged lives, it's like, no, stop wasting it. Don't waste it. Appreciate it. Enjoy it. It'll be over soon enough. <laughs> I'm going to wrap it there, Anna. That was, that's a beautiful sentiment to end on. It's gorgeous. Anna fearlessly shopped her life choosing experiences that captivated her. She's tried to see humanity from many angles, bringing a sense of justice into her worldview. Anna spoke of many things that resonated with me. She questioned how people cease to be seen when they become older, and I'm anxious about that too, about how a life well lived goes unnoticed because in our culture, youth supplants old age. The second thing was when Anna said that even if someone dies, you continue to have a relationship with them. I understood that this wisdom had come from loss and I was grateful that she shared it. I recorded three stories in four days when I was in Idaho and Anna's was the last. The stories are all different, but in a way they're all the same. Three women with enormous strength of purpose were molded in a place where you had to be strong to get where you wanted to go. And so once again, I'm pondering resilience, independent thinking, and the wonderment and love of untamed places.